Now you open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke in the ninth chapter. We've been studying through Luke's Gospel. Luke said he wrote the Gospel so that you might have confidence in the things that you have been taught. And what we want confidence about in particular is how we get to that new Jerusalem. How are we saved? How are we redeemed? Luke chapter 9, our text for this morning will be verses 18 through 27. So you'll be finding that passage of Scripture. You know, we love to give out awards and trophies and prizes in America, don't we? You cannot go a week without seeing some sort of primetime special airing the Oscars or the Emmys or the Golden Globes or the Tonys. or I mean, they, they just keep, keep multiplying, don't they? And each winner receives a trophy of some sort. Most of you can picture in your mind uh, the Academy Award, the Oscar, right? And it's not just entertainment. Every sport plays for a trophy. Right now they're playing the World Cup in Brazil. Uh, nations from all over the world have gathered in one place, in one country for one time to see who, who really does have the best soccer team or football team in, in the world. And, and when they get to the end, one team's going to win. And they're going to hold that trophy up high, right? That that trophy. In America, we have the World Series champion, the NBA champion, the Stanley Cup champion, the Vince Lombardi trophy for the Super Bowl winning champion. They each have a trophy. And if you've seen the championship game, the team wins and everybody grabs around the trophy. Everybody wants to hold the trophy. And then besides the overall team awards, there's most valuable players, the most improved player, a rookie of the year, a coach of the year. A finals MVP, the the list goes on and on and on and on. We love to give out awards, and we love to receive awards too, don't we? Well, in Luke chapter 9, in Luke's gospel, we've been building up to a momentous occasion. That's the identity of Jesus Christ. He's going to ask a question that the apostles are going to answer, and, and, and the answer that they give, and then the response Jesus gives is not what they anticipate. In Luke 9, verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray together and study the scriptures together. Father, your word is water to thirsty souls. And I pray that in humility today, we've come to the fountain of living water. The Lord Jesus Christ in in your word. He's the word become flesh. He's dwelt among us, as the Apostle John said. We've beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Father, we very much need both. We need grace and we need truth. 
So would you use your word for that purpose among us? We confess and believe that your word is the Holy Spirit-inspired, God-breathed word of God. And so we've not come today to examine the scripture so much as confessing in humility that it's the scripture that examines us. And this most important question, who is Jesus? I pray you would give us grace to answer this question well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christ is a title the Hebrews would use for the champion of champions. I mean, this is a title beyond World Cup champions or Oscar winner. This is the ultimate title. And we see here in Luke 9 that there are specifically three questions that are answered. And so if you have an outline and want to follow along, we'll ask the question. And then the good news of the scripture is it doesn't just raise questions. It also gives answers. And so the first question we're asked is simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, if you've been studying along with us, we've gotten to what's probably the, um, in terms of popularity, in terms of numbers coming to Jesus, the high mark of his public ministry. This, this text right here is going to mark a transition from concluding the Galilean ministry, and he's going to begin to head to Jerusalem. But here in Galilee, he's done sort of all sorts of incredible things, hasn't he? He stilled the storm. He calmed the storm with a word. He's, he's healed the demoniac. He, he healed the woman with the bleeding. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And then the, the uh, kind of the climax miracle that involved the most number of people was the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle that we looked at last week. And it's at that miracle that Jesus is as popular as he's ever going to be. And then something begins to happen. Instead of the crowds getting larger and larger and larger, from this moment on, they actually get smaller and smaller and smaller until when he arrives in Jerusalem and is crucified on the cross, there's only one friend, basically, the Apostle John, and then these women who have stayed with him to the end, and that's it. So that begs the question, what happened? And and answering that question begins with understanding this question, who is Jesus? The timing of this question here in Luke's gospel is is very important. Again, the feeding of the 5,000 is the climax of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And now Jesus' focus will become laser-like on a specific subject matter. He's going to Jerusalem. And before he gets to Jerusalem, he wants the disciples to understand who he is and very importantly, what he's going to do when he gets to Jerusalem. We know this is an important moment in Jesus's ministry. We were clued into that by Luke nine eighteen. It says there, now it happened that as he was praying alone, and Luke always uh, points out the prayer life of Jesus at very crucial and important moments in the ministry and life of Jesus. Luke points out specifically that he prays at these strategic moments. Jesus prayed just before his baptism. He prayed during his temptation in the wilderness. He prayed just before he chose the twelve. In subsequent chapters, we'll see him praying before the transfiguration. And we'll see his most intense praying when? Right before he's crucified. And so we pick up on the clue that this is an important moment. This is a transition moment in his ministry. And after praying, he asked his disciples a straightforward question. And you know what a straightforward question requires? A straightforward answer. And we're kind of a him and hall generation, aren't we? 
Uh, we like to say something without actually saying something. You know what I'm saying? Have, have, have you noticed that's just kind of what we put on to the end of any statement? Because we're scared to death we're going to offend somebody. You know what I'm saying? And so we, we insert all these phrases that, that sort of we make a statement and then it's almost like we want to make sure that the statement that we just made was okay with the person we made the statement to, right? We hem and we haul. We, 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 we don't want to really stand on any solid ground. We don't know how to make declarative statements anymore. We, we do our very best to give answers that don't really say anything about anything. Now, we all know what it's like to watch a political debate where a question is posed and the candidate talks for two or three minutes and never answers the question. You know, most politicians are actually trained on how to not answer a question, but how to take the question and transition whatever was asked into their bullet points of what they actually wanted to talk about. My favorite is when a candidate thanks the moderator for asking such a great question and then proceeds to talk about everything but the actual question. You just tune in to the next political program and see if I'm wrong, right? Right? Know what I'm saying? I'm just as bad as it sometimes. It's not just politicians, is it? It's all of us. The questions Jesus asks in the Gospels are never vague. Let me give you a sampling of some of the questions that he asked. To the disciples in the boat when the storm had come up and he had already said, we're going to go to the other side. Here's the question. Where is your faith? To the woman who touched him when she reached out in faith, the question, who touched me? Simple question, right? And there's a definitive answer to the question. Here's a question that he asked in the text that we just studied, other than who people said that I am and who do you say that I am? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? It's a good question, isn't it? To the blind in the Gospels, at another instance, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not see the plank that's in your own eye? Or in Matthew 9, he asked the question to the Pharisees, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your mind? It's interesting questions that Jesus asks, isn't it? All the questions that Jesus asks are important, and they deal with the most important matters of life. There's never a trivial question. Every question is directed at getting a specific and deep-rooted answer. And this, perhaps, is the most question of all. He begins here with a a survey of popular opinions, right? In verse 18, and he asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? Well, very frequently, we're much more comfortable in saying what the popular opinion is or what other people are saying or what the crowds are saying or what the survey says or what the opinion polls suggest than what we think. And so, so he, he polls them about that. And this is the second time we've received this kind of information about what the crowd's opinion of Jesus is. If you go back to Luke chapter 9 and verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch, who was a politician, by the way, who didn't like clear questions, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And the disciples give the same answer. Verse 19, they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So that's obviously the opinion poll of the day. The newspaper would come out. Here's the poll. 33% think it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. 33% think it's Elijah. 33% think one of the other prophets. All they all have in common is this. They're all wrong. And so Jesus then 
changes the question. He just, same question, but he changes just a few words. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And that's where it gets interesting for all of us. Because again, this isn't a question, who is Jesus, that's just posed to the masses. It's a question that's actually posed to you and to me. And it's very important that you have an answer for the question. Because it is a question that will demand an answer from you at some time. The wise thing to do is to go on and figure out the answer now, right? Ever taken a final exam at college or in school that you didn't really study for? And you knew it was coming? <laughs> the teacher even said, here's the, here's the questions that I'm going to ask on the final exam. Here's the final exam in, when, when you stand before the Lord. What did you think about Jesus? I've already given you the, the question. Here's Peter's answer. Peter answered, the Christ of God. So that's the answer. Who's Jesus? The answer, according to this text here, is that he's the Christ. Now, what does that word Christ mean? Christ is a title. It's the Greek rendering of a Hebrew word, Messiah, or anointed one. Peter's confession shows that the disciples had come to believe that Jesus was the anointed one of, that Israel had been waiting for. The prophets have, have said he's going to come, he's going to come, he's going to come, the Messiah is going to come, the anointed one is going to come. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're him. Jesus, Peter is saying, is the long-awaited, God-given hope of salvation, their deliverer. So what we think about Jesus is, is everything. Acceptance or rejection of him makes all the difference, does it not? Makes all the difference in, in your life. Makes all the difference in your marriage. Makes all the difference in your family. What you really believe about him matters tremendously. And there are three options when it comes to answering this question, who is Jesus? You can answer like the disciples. You say, you are the Christ. Or you could answer, he's not the Christ. The only other option is to procrastinate about answering. That's it. And that, one, that option, procrastinating, has a dangerous built-in time limit to it, does it not? The answer the crowds were giving is that he's somebody special. He's somebody unique. He's, he's like a prophet. He's a good teacher with a good message that people should hear. And what I want you to see is that's the one response that Jesus Christ himself won't allow us to have. Occasionally, I like to read... Uh, C.S. Lewis, an author that many of you are familiar with. And here's, here's how C.S. Lewis reflected on this issue. He, he wrote, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Here's the foolish thing C.S. Lewis says people sometimes say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis writes. A man who has merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he must be a madman or something else. Who do you say I am? Jesus says, I believe he is the Christ. I believe he is the anointed one. I believe he is the Messiah. I believe he did come to rescue his people. I believe he did come to redeem us. The next question then is where it gets a little bit trickier. And, 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 and if we're not careful, we'll read over this next section and the shock of it won't uh, resonate with us. 
What Jesus is about to say is a shocking plot twist. It's totally unexpected and, in fact, would be the last thing Peter or the disciples would have anticipated him saying after they've just said, you're the Christ. You ready for it? The next question is, why has he come? Now, it's right here. Again, we get a shocking plot twist. Israel understood the Messiah would be a conquering king. The Messiah, when he came, he'd liberate them from their enemies. Now, they thought in terms of someone in the mold of Alexander the Great, who'd lived not too awful far in the past from this moment. They thought in terms of Alexander the Great type hero who would lead forth a victorious army. And think about what Jesus has just done in the text we've been reading. Now, you've got to put yourself back all the way back then and, and think in terms of a large, conquering army. Do, do you know what one of the significant obstacles to a large, conquering army and an invasion force was in those days? It's the weather. Something as simple as the weather. I mean, the weather turns bad, and it... it it, it could prevent the, the army from doing what they purpose to do, right? A rainstorm comes. You, you're leading the army out, and then, then all of a sudden the winds prevail against you or out in, the, out in the sea where they do a sea battle. What's Jesus just proven? He can speak, and the weather is perfect. Storm comes up. Oh, that's all right. He'll just speak, and our invading, conquering army can, can move right on. Well, what else has he demonstrated? Well, well if you're leader of a large conquering army, of course, one of the significant obstacles you'd face would be casualties. You go out to battle and somebody gets hurt, somebody gets cut, somebody starts bleeding. What's Jesus just demonstrated? Oh, here's a woman who had an issue of bleeding for 12 years and he's just healed her. Worst case scenario, you lead a conquering army out to battle and they die. What's Jesus just demonstrated? Oh, no problem. He can raise them from the dead. So the disciples have this mentality in their mind. The Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to destroy Rome. He's going to take those Roman legions and send them packing. We are going to be done with being overcome by the Egyptians. We're going to be done with having the Assyrians invade us, the Babylonians. Bring it on, everybody. We've got the Messiah. The Christ is here. And then... Another significant obstacle for a large standing army is how in the world are you going to feed all these people, right? You know why they built the Roman roads? So that they could move supplies up and down. Oh, we've got an issue in Jerusalem. We'll send them down, send the bread, send the soldiers. Send What's Jesus just demonstrated? You want to feed an army? All I need, two loaves, five fish, we're good to go. So, so, so do you see now Peter's got this mentality in his mind, hey, the Christ has come. And look down here in verse 46 of the same chapter. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. You know what they're saying? Hey, yeah, yeah, we, we got it. He's the general. I, I'm second in charge. I'm next in line. James and John will have a fight. Their mother uh, gets involved in it too. I want to sit at your right hand. And Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking. So, so the question now, why has he come? Here's how the disciples would have answered the question. He's come to conquer. He's come to rid Jerusalem of Roman occupation. Now the Messiah's come. He's finally going to establish a kingdom right here in Jerusalem. And all the other nations will finally be afraid of us for a change. You know Jewish history, right? 
Century after century after century, generation after generation, it's been one nation after another after another that's conquered them, that's defeated them, that's uh, uh, had control in Jerusalem. From the Egyptians to the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans, now the Messiahs here in those days are over. And that understanding does come from some Old Testament texts. Turn with me to Isaiah. Now, there's a thousand places we could go, almost literally a thousand places we could go. But I want you to turn with me to Isaiah. We're going to narrow our focus to this one prophetic book, Isaiah chapter 11. Look with me in Isaiah 11. Verses 1 through 5. This is an example of Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. This is an Old Testament prophecy about the Christ who is to come. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to come from the Davidic line. Jesse is the father of David. So a Davidic-like king. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. That's a prophetic utterance about the Messiah. Some good news there, isn't it? So one's going to come and he's going to be a righteous judge. He's not going to judge by his eyes. It's not going to be the same old, same old, the same hypocrisy and the same people who wield power for their own purpose and their own sake. Here's going to come one who's going to come and he's going to, by the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. So here's going to come. He's going to wipe them out. Same book, Isaiah chapter 61. Another prophetic utterance about the Messiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. A great text. And so, so the Jewish people held firm and fast to these kinds of texts. And he, you know, when Jesus went to Nazareth and stood up in the synagogue and said, give me the scroll, he turned to Isaiah 61, didn't he? And he read the first two verses. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, their understanding was they were captive to Rome. And so when the Messiah came, he was going to liberate them. So, with that understanding, you read verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now, with that understanding, let's let it come to us how significant and unexpectedly these next words of Jesus are. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What? 
do you, do you feel a little bit how the disciples look at him and say, what? In fact, they must be hard of hearing because look in verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And look what it says, verse 45. They did not understand the saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They're afraid to ask him about it. It, does, it makes so little sense to them. They, they start to think, what's he talking about? Is he, is he off a little bit? Is he, is he confused? Has the pressure finally called up to him? Has he been out in the sun too long today? What, what's the deal here? The Messiah, the Christ has come. We're heading to Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of anticipation among the disciples and other followers of Jesus when the Messiah enters Jerusalem. Hey, on that donkey, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Where the Messiah comes, he's going to take the Romans and wipe them out, establish the kingdom. All the other nations now are going to bow down before the Jewish people, and that's how it's going to go. That's their understanding. Now, why has he come? The answer that he gives is to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised. And this is not what they expected. It's almost like Jesus, I know what you're thinking. You didn't, understand, you didn't know your pastor was actually a uh, heavyweight champion, did you? <laughs> he said, where did you get that? This was a wedding present, which only brings up a thousand other questions on your part, I know. <laughs> I'm just going to let the answer just stay out there leave you perplexed about that. But um, here's what the disciples are saying. He is the Christ. He's he's the champion. He's the the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's he's got the championship belt. What sense does it make to say this? The champion of the universe is going to suffer? It seems contradictory, doesn't it? The reason he's the champion is because he doesn't suffer. It, the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to make other people suffer, especially starting on the top of the list with the Romans. And then we can deal with the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, and all the rest. To be rejected? No, 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 no. The Messiah doesn't come and be rejected. The Messiah rejects other people. Messiah suffer, rejected, killed? No, 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 no. The, the, these are, these verbs on the screen, the answer, why does he come, are the least likely words to be used. How can the Christ suffer? How, how can the champion be defeated? That doesn't make it. Is that glaring on somebody's face? How can the champion be defeated? And it's right here that a gross miscalculation on behalf of the disciples and the Jewish people in general is revealed. Because Isaiah doesn't just speak about the anointed one and the Messiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Actually beginning in Isaiah 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Right? That sounds messianic, right? 
Sounds anointed. Well, yeah, that's the... And, and then we get this confusing. Verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's saying something happened to this guy that his appearance, he doesn't even look human anymore. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like before him like a young plant, like a shoot of dry ground, out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from him whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Isaiah and Isaiah 61 and the other texts that we've looked and we could look at many more. Isaiah speaks about this one who's going to come, who's the Messiah, who's the anointed one. And then he also speaks of one who's often referred to as the suffering servant that you just read about in Isaiah 52 and 53. And for generations and generations and generations, their understanding is that these references are to two totally different people. And that's a logical conclusion, is it not? I mean, how can, how can an anointed, conquering king like Christ have anything in common with a despised, rejected, suffering servant? And it's here at the, at the climax of his popularity in Galilee. Look back with me in Luke 9. The wording's important. Paul, Peter rather says, you are the Christ of God. He, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, the Christ must suffer many things. That's not what he says. He says, the son of man must suffer many things. Why? This is explosively surprising. The son of man is the title that Jesus most often uses for himself. It's a reference to the suffering servant. The suffering servant is the Christ. Now, now I said that to you and we were all okay. To suggest that to the disciples at this period of time and to a Jewish person in general, that would have floored them. That's like saying the NBA champions finished in dead last. It's, it's, it, it can't work that way. And Jesus says, this is how it's going to work. The son of man, who is the Christ, he's going. For what purpose has he come? To, be, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised. The conquering king is the suffering servant. The suffering servant is the conquering king. Now, we did this Sunday night, and I want to do this again with you this morning. I want you to find two texts. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. All right, so that's the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. And then I also want you to find Revelation chapter 22. And I want you to find them at the same time. So you've got to, well, I mean, find them one at a time and then have both of them. <laughs> It'd be hard to find them at the exact same time. I realize that. So, uh, got Genesis 3, verse 24. 
and then Revelation chapter 22. And what I want you to do, all right, and once you got it, this is how mine looks. I want you to kind of hold your Bible like that so you got one, but you got both texts marked at the same time. And then, and then I want you to hold all the pages that are in between those two references, okay? So Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. This is after the fall. This is what God does. He drove out the man and the east, uh, at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What's the verb there? He drove out the man. He said, you got to get out of here. You're not welcome here. You, you got to leave. He drove them out. All right, keep your spot there. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 7. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who... uh, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You saw it, saw it happen. Uh, in Genesis 3, the man's driven out. In Revelation 22, the man's welcomed in, right? Driven out from the garden, welcomed into the garden where the, God, where, where the Lord himself dwells. So the question that's, that's, that's being asked is, is how did we get from one to the other, right? How do we get from man being driven out to now man being welcomed in? And the answer is you're holding that in your hands. That's the answer. That's what the Bible's all about. That's what this entire Holy Spirit, God-breathed scripture is all about. How do we get from driven out of the presence of God to welcomed into the presence of God? And the answer to that question is the Christ is the suffering servant. The Christ has come to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised. This is what he says. The Messiah came to conquer an enemy far greater than the emperor of Rome. The Messiah came to bear the just wrath of God the Father against sin. This is Bible truth now, right? The Messiah, he's going to Jerusalem, not to drive the Romans out, but to actually stand in our place. Because we got bigger problems than Rome. We got bigger problems than the economy. We got bigger problems than whatever it is that we sometimes think our problem is. Oh, I often say our biggest problem is we don't know what our biggest problem is. Our biggest problem is God the Father is holy and we're sinful. And that's a big problem according to the Bible. So big, he drove us out. And Christ is so sufficient that after he does something, we're welcomed back in to worship him face to face. The question is, how? I know we're asking a lot of questions this morning. How? How does that happen? Because the Son of Man's going to suffer. Remember what Isaiah said? All we like sheep have gone astray. We're the ones who sinned. All we like sheep have gone astray. God has laid upon the Messiah, the Christ, oh, the suffering servant, oh, all the same person. The iniquity of us all.
We were driven out of the presence of God because he's holy and just. He cannot and will not overlook sin. If he did, he would not be holy. Do we understand that? He doesn't kind of wink at sin, oh, no big deal. No, no. He would not be holy if he just overlooked sin. We have an innate ability to rationalize our sin and not see it for what it really is. It's part of being sinful. We're blind to our own sin. But God's not. And so the Messiah's come, and now he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. Oh, and by the way, on the third day, because he is the Christ, he is going to be raised. Now, that brings us to our last question, and we may not be able to have time to get all into it this morning. But if he is who he says he is, and he's done what he said he's going to do, the third question is, what does he require? What does he require then? Hey, that's what we get in verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And I told you at the very beginning, it's at this moment that Jesus, his popularity is high as it's it's going to be as far as the number of people who come to him. And what changes? What changes is statements like this. Because up to this point, he's been helping and he's been healing. You got blind people, we're going to heal them. You got lame, we're going to make them walk. You got dead, we're going to raise them again. What changes is when he begins to make demands of people who want to follow him. What changes is when he increasingly reveals that he is the Messiah, but not the Messiah that you thought was coming. Not the political Messiah, not the economic Messiah who just gives you plenty of food to eat and so on and so forth. No, no, I'm the conquering king, and if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. The answer to that is complete surrender and self-denial. And we'll get into this text a little more in detail next week. But it's helpful to point out And to be reminded of who's making this requirement. Because this is extreme, right? If anybody, anybody is going to come after Christ, he has to deny himself. We live in a world that says, don't deny yourself anything. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you do have to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, it's helpful to be reminded who makes this requirement. It's the one who willingly took upon himself sin that was not his own. It's the one who's going to Jerusalem to solve a problem not of his own making. It's the conquering king who willingly became the suffering servant that we may enter the kingdom. And the great mystery of God's revealed in this way. He conquers by suffering. You see, there's a fourth word after suffer, rejected, and killed. You see it? On the third day, be raised. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you what it says in conclusion, Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. When they got to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This is Luke 24. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men in dazzling apparel stood by them and asked this question. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Remember how he told you when he was still with you in Galilee. That's this text. They're in Galilee in Luke 9. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must, what? 
suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and on the third day, rise again. And then they remembered what he had said. This is this group of women. They leave and go back to the apostles. And they give a report of all that happened. And this is what the Bible says in Luke 24. You can look it up. It seemed to the disciples an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter, you know Peter, right? Oh, Peter. Oh, quick to answer Peter. Oh, you are the Christ. Peter arose and went to the tomb. And stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen cloth, linen cloth lying there. And he went away marveling at what had happened. Peter didn't get it until the resurrection. That's why Jesus tells him, by the way, uh, Peter, you got the right answer. I am the Christ, but, but you don't know what I've actually come to do. So that's why he says, strictly charge them not to tell anybody. How, 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 how can Peter be a witness until, <laughs> until he understands himself? I think when Peter was standing in that empty tomb and he looks down at those linen cloths lying there for the first time, he got it. He got it. This is Peter. This is Peter who had said, no, 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 don't wash my feet. This is Peter who said, you are the Christ. And then, it's not in Luke's account, but the other gospel account, when Jesus said, I have to go and suffer, that Peter comes alongside and pats Jesus on the back. Oh, my friend, uh, you're not going to have to go to Jerusalem and die. And what did Jesus do? He turned around and looked at him and said, get thee behind me, Satan. You are not putting your mind on things of God, but things of men. That's a rebuke. Why? I must go. I must go and suffer. I must go and be rejected. I must, be, I must go and be killed. Or Revelation 22 cannot be written. If I don't do this, all you're left with is Genesis 3. You can't come here anymore. Because of Christ, that angel with the flaming sword can lower that sword down. The only thing that can do that is the spotless blood of the Lamb. That Christ was crucified for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The disciples wanted that verse to be written that God demonstrate his love for us and that he ran those sorry Romans out of Jerusalem as fast as could be. But do you understand? Don't set your, things on, uh, don't, don't set your mind on things of men, but on things of God. We've got bigger problems than Rome. We've got the righteous wrath of God against sin and the conquering king has come to be the suffering servant. We stand with me. We'll pray together. When they sang that song this morning, the title of it was New Jerusalem. It wasn't New Galilee. (laughs) Not a New Galilee coming. Galilee was when Jesus was his most popular among people. Because they've been well fed and they've been healed and he just done what they wanted him to do for them. No, New Jerusalem is coming. Jesus, the Bible says in Luke 9, 51, set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. You know what happens in Jerusalem? Suffering happens in Jerusalem. And sometimes our issue is that we're trying to follow a suffering servant without being willing to suffer. Are you ashamed of Jesus? What, Luke 9? We'll talk about that more next week. What's your answer to the question of, from Jesus, who do you say that I am? We're going to have a time of invitation. And prayerfully this morning, you got an answer to all those questions that we ask. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. 
And yet he is also the suffering servant. What's he come to do? He's come to suffer, be killed, be rejected because of our sin. And to be raised again. What does he require? Well, he requires everything. He requires you to deny yourself, take up your own cross, and follow him. The only cost that's higher of following Jesus is the cost of not following him. Who do you say that he is? Today you're invited to confess him as the Christ, the Messiah who willingly suffered as the suffering servant to pay your debt so that you would be welcomed into the presence of God. He is the champion. (laughs) He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is coming back as a conquering king. And the good news of the gospel, those who have faith in Jesus know the king who comes back for us was first a suffering servant who died in our place. What a savior. Let's pray together. Father, during this time of invitation, I pray that it's your word that speaks most clearly to us. The Holy Spirit inspired word of God. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. And sometimes like the disciples, we're so hard-hearted and hard-headed. We just don't see it. Help us to understand it was necessary for Christ to pay the penalty for our sin. To absolve your just wrath, O God. The gospel is that Christ has died in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. I pray that we know the deep, deep love of Jesus. He is a conquering king who chose to willingly suffer that we might reign with him. I pray that you would lead our time of invitation, that it glorifies the only one worthy of our worship, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.